welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged each week to still be sitting here in this chair as your host and interviewer where I have the immense privilege multiple times a week now to have a conversation with some of the world's most seminal thought leaders, people that have dedicated their entire personal and in many cases professional lives to uncovering insights, sharing their survival of sometimes tragic events and how they demonstrated the resilience to back, bounce back from them. Oftentimes, I'm interviewing best-selling authors and business titans, multi-star generals, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors each week in an attempt to have Franklin Covey shine their spotlight on these individuals to bring their genius and their insight to your role as a leader, whether it's a formal leader inside a multinational organization, whether you are a entrepreneur, entrepreneur, or solopreneur, or perhaps you're formally a leader in your family, or for most of us, we're not formal leaders of people, we are perhaps informal culture carriers. Franklin Covey has expertise in a narrow topic of areas, but we know Others have expertise, and we love to model the spirit that Dr. Covey, our co-founder, left with us of having an abundance mentality to ensure we can use our platform to bring the spotlight to others. You may know also I serve as the author of a 10-volume book series published by HarperCollins called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are out where every year I take, with the privilege and the permission of 30 guests, the time to write a book, both in print audio, digital, and now in video from lit video books, a chance to highlight 30 insights that I found were transformational from the previous year's podcast. One and two are out, volume three coming in the next year uh, on my way to 10 volumes in 10 years in the series. Today's guest was actually master mentor number 21 from the first volume. He's a prolific author, blogger, and influencer, and as I wrote in the book, next to my parents... He probably has had the most consequential impact on my life than anyone I've ever met because of his own generosity, his sometimes tough talk with me. He's what's known as an iconoclast. He is, um, he is contagiously abundant in terms of helping other people. He's one of the few uh, sort of celebrity thought leaders and authors that everyone says the same thing. Can you believe he responded to my email? It takes sometimes months and weeks for people to get a response, but the commonality I hear about this person is, he may have said no, but can you believe how gracious he was and he responded to my email? Our guest today is the influencer, the thought leader, the father, the husband, the entrepreneur, Seth Godin. Welcome to On Leadership. Well, thank you. Thanks for doing this over and over again. People don't know how hard it is and you show up and make it look easy. And uh, I've enjoyed all of your books and talking to you is always a pleasure. I gotta say, I'm not sure I want on my tombstone, he answered all the emails, but maybe that's what I have to live with. Well, I think it's, it's so indicative of your brand, Seth. Uh, I'm a raving fan, everyone knows that. I write about you in, in all of my books and my blogs. In fact, my favorite story about you before we get into today's topic of the coming release, the Song of Significance is, when I wrote my first book, which was seven books ago, called Management Mess to Leadership Success, you were one of the authors that put your credibility on the line for me and you gave me an endorsement. And after the book launched, it became a bestseller. 
uh, it sold very well. And uh, the day it hit number one on Amazon, I sent you an email. And I was so proud. I'm like, Seth, thank you for your support. The book hit number one. And I remember exactly what you wrote back. A man of few words you are. Frequent, consistent words, but few words. You wrote back, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. Stop checking. Start writing. And I have shared that story thousands of times because you weren't diminishing my win. You were saying, stop checking Amazon as we all do in the first era of our authorship. Go back to writing more, create, ship, take the risk. It's one of your brands. One of the, I think the biggest gifts you've given to millions of creators around the world is the confidence to kind of quote, ship it. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. By the way, your blog that comes out every day for years and years, I've never once found a grammar or spelling error. So you have a high standard in your brand. Seth, before we get into the topic of today, the song of significance, will you, will you re-embolden our listenership and viewership today with why it's so important to sort of balance uh, perfection with creation, to get something out there? So Nike has this expression, just do it. And if we corrupt that to just ship it, we are minimizing the magic of what's possible. Just ship it means what the hell, put junk into the world. That's not what I'm talking about. Merely ship it, ship it without a lot of drama in your head, ship it without attachment to the outcome. Per perfect and quality have a very specific meaning and we should not ship junk, but if we're going to do work that is worth noting and worth paying for, it has to be better than average. Another word for average is mediocre. And what we're seeing with AI and robots and outsourcing is if you are average, we can find someone cheaper than you, someone faster than you, someone more obedient than you, probably a computer. And uh, I, I released a podcast in March that was completely written by artificial intelligence and actually narrated by a voice that was trained by 11 labs that sounds just like me. So if I'm just going to sound just like me and write sort of like it sounds like me, you don't need me anymore. And the system will come for you. The stopwatch will come for you. That the opportunity that organizations have that have actual leaders, not simply managers, is to do something that might not work, something unexpected, something created with care and humanity but you won't know any of those things until you ship the work. Seth, when I opened, I said it very sincerely. I don't know a person who's had a bigger impact on my life than you have. I've read every book you've written. I've read thousands of your daily blogs. You continue to uh, re-inspire me daily on the value of showing up, the value of hard work, the value of consistency. You have tens of thousands of people that have taken your courses, that have graduated from the Alt-MBA and Akimbo, you also produce what is a seminal daily blog. My brother-in-law, who is John Lofgren, who works at Franklin Covey, he refers to you as the Sethoscope because you're like the guy <laughs> that has his ear to, the, to, the, to every conference room, every boardroom, every Zoom call because your ability to understand what's going on in organizations is unrivaled. You produce a daily blog and have done so, I think, uninterrupted for about how many days? 8,000, something like that. Um, I, I would love if we could just talk less about me and more about the people who are listening to this. 
because yeah, I showed up early. I was blogging uh, at the very, very beginning. I had a huge boost because for a while, if you type blog into Google, I was the first match, but that's not the point. And I would blog every day, even if no one read my blog, because for me, the benefit of blogging is knowing that tomorrow I have to say something on the record forever, my opinion, what I see in the world that makes me think differently. And it also creates this generous cycle, not of taking, but of giving. And, you know, Franklin Covey has impacted so many people. And I was lucky enough to spend a day with Stephen, thanks to you years ago. And um, one of the things that Franklin Covey has done is helped managers understand that they can also be leaders, that it is possible to create something of significance, regardless of what your job title is. And it's so easy to let ourselves off the hook and say, well, that person is a great record producer, or that person is a great cricket player, or that person, I couldn't do that, that we're stuck on this talent myth. When in fact, what we need is skill. And anyone who's listening to this already has more skill than they realize. Seth, I belabored that spotlight on you because I continue to think there is so much to learn from your discipline <laughs> and your courage. Let's talk about the, the focus of today. We're taping this interview prior to the launch. Your book releases today, well, the day that we're airing this on May 30th. Your title is called The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. The Song of Significance. And you open the book with this lovely illustration of what is you refer to as the song of increase, and it's a story about a beehive. Would you take some time and just sure. recreate that story? Because there's so many metaphors about the legacy leaders leave in organizations in that beehive. I, I learned about the bees last year, and that led to this book existing. A beekeeper who specializes in feral bees in California named Jacqueline Freeman wrote a book called The Song of Increase. And she says the bees helped her write it and I don't doubt her. Uh, here's what happens. In North America, it's a different season than, than, in Northern Hemisphere, a different season than the Southern Hemisphere, but the idea is the same. At the end of a long winter, most of the honey will be gone because the purpose of the honey isn't to have something for your tea. The purpose of the honey is to sustain the hive through the winter. And if the hive has made it through the winter, the Council of Maidens, which is the group of bees that lead the hive, will meet and they will decide that it is time for more, time for an opportunity, time to take things to a new level. And they'll build a vertical egg chamber and instruct the queen to lay and fertilize a queen egg. Now, the thing about a beehive is it only has one queen. She lays 800 or so bees a day every single day. She lives for a few years but she doesn't fertilize them to turn into queens because there's only room for one queen. And the maidens will lavish this egg with royal jelly and nurture it. And at the same time, they will instruct the rest of the maidens, sometimes called worker bees, to go replenish the hive. And in a flurry of activity in June near where I live, uh, they will collect an enormous amount of pollen and soon the hive will be back in business but then something extraordinary happens. The Council of Maidens, based on the weather, sends a signal to the rest of the hive. And more than 10,000 bees, including all the worker bees, the queen bee, and all the adult maidens, 
will leave the hive in a 10 minute period of time. They will all swarm and leave. And the sound they make is called the song of increase. And during that period, it's astonishing to listen to, they will leave in a swarm and land in a tree 200 yards away. And if it rains in the next three days, they'll all die. If they can't find a place to live in the next three days, they'll all die. They have left behind all the honey, all the baby bees, the pips, and they've left behind the queen, the new queen. And they have this moment of leaping forward without a net, without reassurance, because they can. And when I heard this story, it shook me to my core. Because what we see so often in our industrial world are cranky billionaires who are belittling and bullying people. We see mass layoffs. We see entities that have indoctrinated people to be cogs in a machine that aren't doing what they said they were going to do. And it's so easy in the middle of all that to just watch some cable TV and put our junk in storage and try to make it to the weekend. And we're not bees, but we need significance. We need that leap. We need to feel like we did something important. And that's why I wrote the book. Seth, what I also took away from that story was, uh, was speaking to me as a leader of people is that there's a time for me to move forward and move on and make sure I have set up the conditions, the opportunities, the skill set, the confidence in people to move in. Talk about how important it is the legacy leaders are creating for those behind them. I think we need to put a big flag in right now to establish that words matter and managers and leaders are different. And we can acknowledge both of them. We can embrace both of them, but realize that most of the time we can't do both jobs at the same time. Managers use power and authority to get what they got yesterday, but faster and cheaper. So fast food restaurants need managers because no one would show up for their shift if they didn't have them. Leaders, on the other hand, make a voluntary choice. And that is to invite people to enroll in voluntarily following them. And if we're going to lead, we don't need more authority. We simply need to care enough to show up and tell people where we are seeking to go and invite them on the journey, to trust them, to create the conditions to help them get to where they want to go. So turnover is not a bad thing if you're a leader. Turnover is simply telling you that some people don't want to be on this bus. Thanks for letting me know. We need to be okay with each other about this. That what leaders get to do is live in that liminal space between here and there to help figure out the journey and get out of the way. And I have learned through the years that this is a choice. And it's very hard to tell someone to be a leader. And it's very hard to tell a manager that they must lead because they're different. And if we can embrace that, then the leaders can show up as you have shown up in your career and figure out when to lead, when to tell people what to do, when to get out of the way, when to create the conditions for the song of increase. Seth, speak to this concept of uh, agency and dignity. You write a lot in the book about the conditions that leaders need to create to hold their employees also accountable, to be as kind as the circumstance warrants but let's define for all of the literally millions of leaders and a few managers along the way listening and watching agency and dignity. Dignity is hard to claim, but easy to give. And um, I am 
I was told the story of Leona Helmsley, uh, who famously was arrested for tax evasion and for just being a jerk. And Leona was sitting uh, with her lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, and had a servant, she used the word servant, bring them uh, two cups of tea. And when Leona looked at her saucer, she saw that there were a couple drops of tea that had sloshed into the saucer. And she looked at the servant, held the teacup and the saucer and dropped it onto the floor where it crashed into a thousand pieces. And then she made that hardworking man get on his hands and knees and clean it up. She took his dignity. She built her entire career out of taking people's dignity, right? That when you fire an employee publicly and humiliate them, you're taking their dignity. It's very hard for a human being to recover from that. The flip side of that is we have the opportunity to offer people dignity, to see them as contributors, as humans, as people who have a story in their head, as people who maybe, just maybe, need us to give them space and support. And agency is something else that humans crave, which is the ability to make a choice, the ability to enroll, the ability to make a promise, the ability to make a commitment, not because they are ordered to, but because they can. And I told uh, 10,000 people in 90 countries, and I asked them, tell me about the best job you ever had. And I gave them a whole bunch of choices. And if you asked most managers, they would guess that what people want is high pay and not very much work to do. Those two things came at the bottom. And what came at the top was I exceeded my own expectations. People treated me with respect. I got to work with people who I enjoyed working with, who trusted me and who I trusted. Those are the symptoms of agency and dignity. And that's where you want to work. But as a leader, you have to create that because it's not going to happen by itself. Seth, let's kind of go deeper on this idea of volunteerism and speak to leaders that are trying, don't know how, but they, they, they know they need to do something different. And they're under tremendous pressure. Perhaps they're quarterly driven in a public company. Perhaps their company's laid off people. Perhaps they have a corrupt culture because the CEO behaved in a way that was despicable. One of the lines in the book I love, you said, encouraging employees to keep their LinkedIn profiles and resumes up to date ensures that they are part of the team voluntarily, not because they believe they have no options. I mean, in any way, wouldn't you say the hostage the hostage strategy is over. When, when people are leaving companies and you say, where are you going? They say, I don't know. And I say, no, no, it's okay, you can tell me. And they'll say, no, I really don't know. I mean, I might open up an Etsy store or I might consult or trade crypto. Talk about the imperative that leaders need to understand around the new reality, post-pandemic, middle of regardless, what kind of culture do leaders need to create and how to make sure they have a volunteer workforce? So I don't know if you've talked to Manad Kosla. He wrote a spectacular book called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And I've been stealing that phrase over and over again. Let's get, let's get real or let's not play is a simple way to describe the bargain that needs to take place. And, and to go with the book, I printed up at my expense 50,000 of these little pamphlets. And anyone who buys five copies gets one of these pamphlets. And the idea of giving people a lot of pamphlets to hand out is we can have a conversation. And if you have a hostage mentality, what you want is people to live in the company town, to be so in debt they have no options, and to not know that there are options. And therefore, since they have no options, they'll take whatever you serve up.
That's one way to think as a manager. But that's not going to build a great organization. It's not going to build a resilient organization. It's not going to build an organization where you get anything more than the minimum. And the alternative is not to race to the bottom, but to race to the top. That's only going to happen if you have volunteers. So if you think about the local soccer club or cricket club or whatever it is, everyone who's on your team wants to be there. And so they play differently. They engage with each other differently. And we have seen that happen at work. So sure, work isn't optional. We have to do something to pay our bills. But when you can get enrollment, emotional enrollment from people who want to go where you are going, something special happens. The 14 people who built the Mac in that nine-month sprint, that was special. The 300 volunteers who worked with me to build the Carbon Almanac, we will never forget that time we spent together. Everyone, including me, a volunteer, building a 97,000-word book in record time that won awards and was a bestseller around the world. When we choose to enroll in a journey, leadership is so much easier. Seth, this new book is called The Song of Significance. It is, I believe, 143 chapters. I would kind of almost call them 143 blog posts, but they're not episodic. They're sort of lovingly threaded together, and they're short, they're bite-sizable, almost breathtaking because you got to stop at each one of them and digest it and internalize it. One of them you call our Zoom agreement. I want to read a couple from the pamphlet you so kindly um, gifted to me. You say, our Zoom agreement, if you promise not to check your email while we're talking, we promise not to waste your time. If you agree to look me in the eye and try to absorb the gist of what I'm saying, I agree to be crisp, cogent, and on point. If you are clear about which meetings are a waste of time for you to attend, we can be sure to have them without you. One more. If you can egg me on and bring enthusiasm to the interaction, I can lead into the work and reflect back even more energy than you're contributing. This last one, I have to read it. The purpose of a meeting is not to fill the allocated slot on the Google Calendar invite. The purpose is to communicate an idea and the emotions that go with it and to find out what's missing via engaged conversation. Lastly, you say, reaffirming your status and control isn't worth an hour of my day. Let's talk about the virtual world. You know, many companies are swinging the pendulum hard back, come back into the office. Some are trying to find the right balance of both. What advice would you give to the C-suite, to human resources, people, services that are struggling who are also enjoying the new flexibility, the newfound freedom. Can you like, um, what's that thing on a, on a, on a, um, a piano? What's that thing called that does the- The, the metronome. The metronome is like, I want you to be the metronome for a few minutes and remind leaders like, what is the cadence of flexibility and vulnerability and authority that great leaders find to create a culture where everybody feels significant? Yeah, there's so much juicy stuff here. Let me start with the Zoom thing. First, Zoom is a miracle because it eliminates geography. Asynchronous video is a miracle because it eliminates time. And what this means is I can make a five-minute video. I can send it to everyone on my team and they can watch it whenever they want to. What it means is that we can have a three-minute meeting on Zoom with four minutes of notice 
wherever you are. Yeah. But we have misunderstood both of these things often and said Zoom is a great way to take attendance and make sure that no one who is working from home is out picking up their dry cleaning. Zoom is a great way to reassert my power as a manager by having people sit still while I speak in real time whatever comes into my head until I'm done talking. And then I can say any questions. There won't be any. And I have a record that I told people something. Well, the world changes. It changed when email showed up. It changed when the World Wide Web turned retail upside down. It changed when bookstores were threatened. You get the idea. Well, we have this moment, this opportunity, and we're wasting it by reasserting managerial authority and taking attendance. And instead, what we could do is say, why are we even here? Why is this person on the payroll? What is the change we seek to make? And when I ask managers that question, they often have a hard time answering it. When I say, what is the purpose of this Zoom call that you have instructed me I need to be on? Could we solve that problem in six minutes of asynchronous interaction instead? People are like, I don't know what to do. Because in their mind, the purpose of the Zoom call is to have the Zoom call. Well, no, it's not. And the purpose of paying someone $100,000 a year is not for them to come to a building, drink coffee, and show that they've sold you their time. The purpose is to have them make a change, to turn a non-customer into a customer, to turn an existing customer into a loyal customer. You get the idea. There's lots of changes we can make. And in this moment, when it is so raw, when people confronted their own mortality and the mortality of people they cared about just a year ago, six months ago, two years ago, they're thinking about whether it's worth it to sell their time to you. And if all you're going to be left with is the people who can't come up with anything better to do with their day than people who could sell you their time, it's hard for me to see how you're going to build a great organization. Seth, throughout the book, you, sh- you, you borrow with, with, um, a, with uh, credit many great insights. And one of them, I think, I think came from the early culture of HP, where you talk several times about the value of showing your work. It's something I'm intimately aware of because my oldest son, Thatcher, who is 12, is now into algebraic equations that kicked my you-know-what multiple times in high school, <laughs> multiple times, where he has to show his work. Uh, remind us how, remind leaders how important it is. First of all, what does it mean to show your work and why is that important? Okay, so managers don't have to show their work. Managers can just say, because I said so. But leaders, if they're going to earn enrollment, have to say, how did I come to this conclusion? That if we want to argue about science or social policy or marketing, show me who came before. Why do you think what you think? That the magic of showing your work is evidenced every single time we get on a plane and it doesn't crash or drive a car across a bridge and it holds up. And one of the reasons people are skeptical about full self-driving cars is they refuse to show us their work. But when you do show your work, you invite people to make it better. And that mindset, criticize the work, not the worker, is missing from so many organizations. Because we have fiefdoms and we have managers and we have power struggles when really what we need is alignment about the change we seek to make. 
Seth, I'm going to sense you're going to dislike this question, but maybe you'll indulge me, please, because <laughs> I've thought about it. Um, I've had the privilege of being in your office um, outside of New York several occasions. And when I came, I expected to see like this fury of people running around or whiteboards and lists and, and assistants researching and people, you know, j- no. I think once there was a person and he left. And I, I, I got the sense that because you are so prolific in your, your authorship and your writing and your creativity, you're, I mean, prolific is a word that describes you, there was none of that. There was not this team of research assistants and people feeding you ideas and writing your blogs for you. It was the opposite of that. It was you kind of buckling down and being very disciplined, not taking on too many things so that you couldn't deliver on commitments that you'd already made to others or your audience. You remind me a lot of Stephen M. R. Covey. He turns down as many keynotes as he gets because he wants to make sure the ones he's committed to are the best. And so he actually forgoes more money than he actually probably makes because he wants to deliver. You share that with Stephen and Mark Covey. I ask all this to say you are, I would say, an exceptionally creative person, but you are not surrounded, in my experience, by this cacophony of people feeding it. How do you keep your finger on the pulse? How do you nurture your creativity? And to the extent it's replicable, can others do the same that may feel they are less creative than you appear to be? Uh so there are a few parts to that there question. Are, yes. The first part is, is creativity a talent? And the answer is no, it is not. That every person who is listening to this at least once painted a finger painting that no one had ever painted before, told a joke that no one had ever told before, asked a question that no one had ever asked before. The issue is not, are you capable of being creative? The issue is, do you care enough to ship the work? And do you want to choose to do it again, choose to professionalize the work of speaking up in a generous way. And I have helped people do that. I know people who do that. I am impressed by people like you who do that. And I know it is cap- It is something that it, most uh, people who are uh, in the traditional neurotypical way of being are capable of. So then the question is, If you choose to do that, what kind of practice will fuel you the best? There have been times when I started one of the first internet companies, we had uh, at our peak about 100 employees and more than 40 of them reported directly to me that I was feeding the easily distracted part of my brain by basically answering questions all day, every day. And there was just an infinite amount of incoming that pushed me to be in a certain mode. I decided that that wasn't the best version of me, nor could I sustain it. So since then, I've disciplined myself to say, there is a cacophony, but it's inside here. And I am most likely, as Neil Gaiman is, to do really good work when I get bored, because it's a good way to entertain myself. And so I visit more websites via Ecosia, my search engine, than most people every day. And the thing that I do that is the most easily transferred to any person who's listening or watching is simple. If I see something and I don't understand why it is the way it is, I ask myself, why is it the way it is? Whatever it is, whether it's in politics or whether there's a ramp missing in front of a coffee shop in Brooklyn or whatever it is, if I can ask a question, why is it like that? 
I'm guessing other people might be wondering too. And then I can investigate and I can have a theory. I can make an assertion. I can test that assertion. So when I saw during the pandemic, billionaires who made more money than ever before flexing their muscles by treating people cruelly, I asked myself, how are they getting away with that? Why would people think that's okay? Why are some people even cheering them on when they're not benefiting from it? And that led to the next thing, to the next thing, and to the next thing. So I think the hard work in our culture is to acknowledge that you've been indoctrinated, brainwashed by the industrial system into waiting for your manager to tell you what to do. If you can see the indoctrination, then you can begin to understand it. If you like it, stick with it. And if you don't, ask better questions. Seth, our time is ending. I want to ask you one final question on what is probably the most important topic on most people's minds. You and I share something in common, one small thing, and that is we are the father of, of sons. And one of our biggest contributions now as fathers is to raise these young men and launch them well into the world with confidence and self-esteem and and a purpose and a kind heart and a curious mind. Not everyone is a parent, but some are neighbors and uncles and contributors and leaders and teachers. I'd like you to talk to those of us who are shaping this younger generation. What are the skills you need for Scott and Stephanie Miller to instill in Wentworth and Smith and Thatcher, who are eight, 11, and 12, as they are moving into a, what will be unrecognizable world eight, 10 years from now, it's really the same question for leaders, right? And teachers is, right. what do you need the next generation to know and feel and learn? G- give us a short rundown of that and we'll end our conversation. Well, first, those kids are so lucky to have you, truly. Um, I've written a long rant about this at stopstealingdreams.com. There's a TED talk about it. But the short version is this. The world is going to be unrecognizable in six months, not in eight years. And it will continue to be unrecognizable that anything worth memorizing is now faster to just look up, that we don't need any more mediocre essays because ChatGPT can write them instantly, that the idea of learning algebraic equations is only important because of the, what we understand, not because we need algebraic equations, because Wolfram figured that out years ago. So school was invented, and we were indoctrinated by Andrew Carnegie and Dewey and other agents of billionaires to train kids to become compliant factory workers. The question, will this be on the test, is simply a metaphor for what does my boss want? And we need to take a deep breath and say, information exchange isn't hard like it used to be. The size of the library doesn't matter. We need to teach kids two things. We need to teach them to solve interesting problems and to lead. And you don't wait till your kid is 20 to do that. Your kids are the perfect age if they haven't already started. What's an interesting problem? It's a problem where we're not sure what the answer is. It's a problem where we can't look up the answer. It's a problem where ChatGPT is going to get it wrong. And what does it mean to lead? Well, I just wrote a whole book about that, and so have you. That leadership is this voluntary act of getting people to want to follow you to make something better. And you and I have so much privilege. We've gotten so much of the benefit of the doubt through our years on this planet. We have 
left behind a pretty big mess. But there's a generation coming up that's starting to see what is possible. And if we can encourage that and challenge them to go even further, I think that we've got some hope. Seth, one of Dr. Covey's Covey-isms was this term he called, use your R and your I, your resourcefulness and your initiative. And it's been the hallmark of Mike's success. And it's a phrase that my boys hear multiple times a day. I know, I know, Dad, use my R and my I, you know, how to figure out how to get it done. Uh, the book is called The Song of Significance, uh, releasing at the day of this um, podcast episode's airing. Uh, Seth, I want to send our listeners and viewers off with um, a compliment to you. I've given you a few, but they have all been well-deserved and sincere. Uh, a year and a half ago, I was approached by a large multi-global company to give a speech on leadership, leadership in digital transformation, specifically AI. And I knew nothing about AI, including how to spell it. And I thought, who's the smartest person I know? Well, it was Clayton Christensen. He had just passed, who is equally as smart. I said it, Seth Godin. Ladies and gentlemen, I email Seth Godin and say, Seth, I know nothing about this. And Seth writes back, I'm going to be in my car in five minutes. Here's my mobile phone number. Call me. I call Seth Godin, who I kind of know, but like once a year I talk with him. We're not best buds. He has thousands of requests coming in. And ladies and gents, Seth Godin spent 15 minutes telling me everything he knew about not just AI, but how leadership connects to AI and kind of pulled out in me some of my own thoughts. I went, I crushed it. The client was super happy. And Seth, I just want to compliment you on what is probably an irresponsible level of generosity. I can't imagine you want to respond to every email that comes into you. Please don't email Seth Godin for fear he might need to respond to you. The book is The Song of Significance. If you buy five copies, you get this satellite booklet called Leading Together, which is a genius cheat sheet on the book. Seth, you're such a great friend of Franklin Covey. We appreciate you coming back and um, investing in our listeners and viewers today. Well, thank you. Keep leading. Keep making a ruckus. It really does matter. So thank you. Thank you, sir. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Leadership.